Greetings, you're on Deep Background for the 28th of December, 2016. We're at the end of our ropes. <laughs> I think it's the 21st, David. Yeah, except this isn't going to air until the 28th, so... <laughs> You start over. <laughs> that, no, no. <laughs> right. that's why, One more try. That's why, that's why editing is such an important part of what we do at the uh, Deep Background Podcast. With me is Scott Cannon, as always. Hey. My colleague here at the Star. Great to have you with us, Scott. Uh, Scott. And then Colleen Nelson, who has just joined us here at the Kansas City Star. Uh, you, you, what's your, you're like vice president or something, aren't you? What's your title over there? Vice president and editorial page editor. Uh, of the Kansas City Star. Great to have you with us. And Great to have you on the podcast today. Before we get too much into what your new job is, let's talk about your old job. Okay. You came to us from, you've done a lot of things, obviously, Colleen, but your most recent work involved the presidential campaign, the White House. And I want to end the year by talking a little bit about journalism and political coverage and all the yak that you hear about what you and others, all of us do in, in, in this line of work. You were in the bubble. Take us inside the bubble. What's it like to be a reporter? You were on the Hillary Clinton bus. Mm-hmm. Take, I mean, is it madness? Is it boring? Is it what? What? How does it work for those who have never been through it? It is all of the above, um, as as you describe it. Uh, but so yes, I was on Hillary Clinton's plane uh, a big chunk of the year, and also spent a little bit of time on Donald Trump's plane toward the end. Uh, but it is a lot of long days. Um, the press assembles at the crack of dawn each day, and you get on the plane and you fly from state to state, and you listen to the same speech over and over again, and you get and you end the day at you know two in the morning sometimes when you get to your hotel, and so uh, there's a lot of repetition. But uh, then there are also days that uh, deliver things that you never expected, and so I was on Hillary Clinton's plane the day that the FBI director James Comey announced that he was reopening the investigation into the emails. And so that was something that the Clinton campaign never saw coming. And the uh, reporters on the plane certainly didn't see coming. And uh, just a, a little, like, pulling back the curtain of this, the day that this happened, we're all on the plane. We're flying to Iowa. She's giving a speech in Cedar Rapids. And the news breaks while we're in the air, and the Wi-Fi on Clinton's plane is terrible. And so <laughs> none of us can get on the Wi-Fi. And one reporter finally gets a moment of Wi-Fi and sees a headline flash saying that Comey is revisiting this investigation and announces this to the plane but none of us can access it. None of us can make phone calls. We're in the air. We can't access this information. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton and her advisors are at the front of the plane. The Wi-Fi doesn't work for them either. And so we're all literally flying blind, trying to figure out what the FBI is doing, what is happening as we make our way to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Right. So Which 20 years ago wouldn't have made any difference because you could land in Cedar Rapids. You'd hook up, make a phone call or whatever, and you'd know what to report. In the current environment, you know, speed is of the essence, right? I mean, do you get, did you have a sense of that on the plane and you and your colleagues as well? Speed is of the essence and, and the news cycle is constant. And so, you know, I covered a presidential campaign in, in 2004 where you would file a story once a day and, you know, maybe file something online during the course of the day. And now you just file constantly in real time. And so when something happens, you're expected to file something pretty much instantly. You're expected to tweet it. You're expected to do the this in all different formats, and there's really no time to process it. You're just expected to report it immediately. And really, that's the question is, do you get any chance in the bubble to think about what you're doing? I mean, I think, Scott, you probably agree with this. There's this perception that the National Press Corps 
gathers in a room every night and sort of, you know, Some gets monolithic cabal. You, you get yeah. them right, and okay, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to boost Hillary or not, whatever. But I get the sense that it's harder to actually get perspective on what you're doing while you're doing it than people think. Is that right? It absolutely is. I mean, there's so much pressure to report things first and uh, to report things immediately. And so it's very tough to immediately offer perspective or to kind of sort through what this all means. And so uh, different news organizations do it differently. The Wall Street Journal um, does, does this in such a way that we're always, the person on the plane is always partnering with reporters back in the newsroom who have a little more time and space to make some calls and, and get a little bit different perspective. And also, we would take turns kind of cycling in and off, on and off the plane, because when you're on the plane, it's very tough to do much beyond report what is right in front of you, because you're constantly on the move, you're filing from a bus, um, you, you're in the air, you can't make phone calls to talk to other people to get different perspectives. And so I would be on the plane for a week and then off the plane for a week working from the newsroom. And, and so what our editors would try to give us that time and, and space to provide perspective. But the pressure to report now and instead of an hour from now or a day from now when you might understand something better is immense. That's the central, that was, Scott, wasn't it, the central criticism or observation, not really a criticism, but observation about campaign reporting is that you're, you know, the reporters are so much in that bubble, perspective was very hard to get at, right? Right. And so when you're on the, the, the Hillary bus or plane, what you're mostly getting anyway is essentially canned at one level or another. Um, but you also are making contacts with staff, developing relationships. I wonder, you know, Dave and I spent a lot of time up at the caucuses, but not that sort of traveling press gig. Did you, can you compare the, the Trump um, operation in terms of, were you making contacts with Trump staff and were they more forthcoming or less than the Clinton people? Because I look at the, it's a cliche, I know, but the, 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 if you look at the Twitter accounts of the two, <laughs> it tells you everything because hers read like the committee on right. mm -hmm. Twitter. Right. <laughs> and, his, and it went his, through eight levels of okay before somebody hit the send button. Right. Yeah, and his, you know, whatever, however nutty it might have been, it, you got the sense this is what was truly on the guy's mind. Right. But I wonder what you got at the, at the, from the staff level. Right. Well, I think that's a great observation. And it's interesting because, you know, early on in the campaign, there was so much access to Trump himself. And um, and so he didn't have much staff in place. So there, there weren't many oh, folks... Um, beneath Trump, who were advisors who were authorized to speak. And so, um, but he himself was speaking all the time. And so, you know, at one point I was working on a story about a speech that Hillary Clinton was going to give. And it was kind of, uh, it was kind of an inconsequential story. But I reached out to the Trump campaign just to ask for a brief comment reacting to what <laughs> Hillary Clinton was going to say. And nobody responded to me. And so I emailed again and nobody responded to me again, which wasn't that unusual. And, um, but I went home that night and my cell phone rang at eight o'clock at night and it was an unknown number and I answered the phone and he said hello Colleen this is Donald Trump and without any warning and I hadn't even asked to speak to Donald Trump <laughs> and here he was calling me up he was backstage about to give a speech at a rally in Dallas and just on a wild hair decided to call me and um, as I thought about it it ended up being a smart move on his part because I was writing a story that was going to be mostly about Hillary Clinton and something up up an argument that she was going to roll out. But in the end, Trump made the story more about him by Steps virtue of calling message, me. Right. right. Um, Do you think he understood that? Oh, absolutely. That he was doing that or is, 
Did he have advisors to say, or, or he seemed to have an instinct for that kind of thing, didn't he? He definitely had an instinct. And um, and so he, he did that. And in many ways, it paid off for him. But then as he got later into the campaign and different advisors came onto his campaign, they, they largely shut that down, and as evidenced by the fact that he hasn't had a press conference since July. Right. Um, so he cut off access. Uh, he put more advisors in place, and so you had more people you could talk to within the Trump campaign, but still there was a much bigger infrastructure on the Clinton side. And so, I mean, there, there was a whole long list of folks on the Clinton side you could talk to about stories, not that they were necessarily forthcoming, but there was a large right. infrastructure you could work within. Trump campaign, not so much. And so it was pretty tough to get information out of the Trump campaign uh, in, the, in the late going once Donald Trump wasn't saying much and neither were his advisors. Yeah, yeah, the other thing I got a sense of anyway was uh, you're right, there was an infra infrastructure with the Clinton campaign, but also they understood the sort of normal norms of reporting. Right. You you make a request, you send an email, you need time with a candidate or someone else, you need a statement, and th that would follow fairly regular. That's absolutely not the case with Donald Trump. Right. And, and sometimes that works to his advantage and sometimes it works to his disadvantage. And so, I mean, the Clinton campaign, you know, they pulled out the tried and true how to run a campaign playbook and they played by those rules. And so, you know, they rolled out all of these policy proposals day after day, right. uh, hoping that they could drive the narrative by, you know, making another promise to bring broadband to every house or laying out a proposal for childcare. And they thought they would get coverage by virtue of doing that. Donald Trump laid out virtually no policy proposals, but then he just tweeted something and, and took over the narrative for the day. And in talking with Clinton folks after the campaign, they've been complaining a lot about the fact that they felt like Donald Trump constantly stepped on their message and the media ignored uh, what they felt were substantive proposals in favor of covering the latest outrage uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and that's what I want to explore next, because I think there were two general Again, observations about press coverage of the presidential campaign, Colleen. First, the, the very thing you just mentioned, that the press was swept up in tweets and the outrage of the day and groping or whatever it was uh, at the expense of, uh, you know, serious policy uh, exploration. The other is that somehow the press wasn't listening to the, to the you know, the guy in Pennsylvania or the, or the displaced. I happen to think both of those theories are largely bunk, um, but but also the speed that you talk about contributes to the problems in both areas, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you might want to sit down and say, you know, we need to really take a look at the tax policies of Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton, and then here comes a tweet, here comes a a weird event, here comes somebody screaming at a at a you know taking a punch at a speech, right? How, how do you solve that, or can it be solved? I'm not sure there's an easy solution for that. Um, I think that a lot of folks in the media learned some lessons along the way of covering Trump. And um, I saw someone suggest after the election that um, just as, a, as guidance for covering the Trump White House, that you shouldn't let Donald Trump's Twitter account be your assignment editor. And I thought that was good advice in that, I mean, apparently Donald Trump is going to continue to tweet and is going to continue to say controversial things on Twitter. And, uh, and if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you're giving up some other good and important stories. And it, it's possible to do both. Um, but to your point of, to your point about whether uh, Twitter kind of took over the narrative and and at the expense of substantive stories, 
I, I guess I push back on some of the Clinton folks' complaints about this because we covered those stories too, and we can't force people to read them. We can't uh, make their proposals more interesting. I would argue a lot of their proposals were not fully fleshed out, but they thought that kind of quality over quantity sometimes. They rolled out a lot of different proposals for different policy issues, and then when you really delved into it, there were some holes in there in what they were uh, suggesting, and and so they didn't get a lot of traction. But uh, Scott, wouldn't you agree that's the central riddle we never, cr none of us cracked this year was how much of the Twitter rabbit hole was something that we needed to pay attention right. to, and how much you could legitimately ignore and then turn your attention to other more substantial issues. Yeah, and and I don't think anybody cracked that riddle this year. Right, and you wonder if it might evolve sort of on market pressure or, or audience interest. That mm -hmm. after a while, the the constant barrage of Twitterish type dialogue becomes boring. Right. It just, it just it, it, and and the and people don't click. And so, if they're not clicking our stories about the latest tweet, then maybe they will click on Colleen's ten thousand word piece on tax policy. Yeah, well, yes, on the, please. <laughs> yes, yes, please. But. But on the other hand, you have, one assumes, editors mm -hmm. and producers in television and radio saying, well, yeah, I like this 10,000-word piece, but hey, <laughs> what about this thing on X or Y? It takes enormous energy and judgment and skill, doesn't it, to sort of differentiate between those Yeah, but so the, I mean, the difference from now to, say, a, a decade ago is that we've got metrics on what people are looking at that we're all very aware of. We all know in the star, you know, exactly how many people click on a story, how long they look at it, where they came from. And that didn't exist. And, and our emphasis on what we were getting in terms of web traffic, and, and, and the star is just a microcosm of what you've seen across the mediascape. So, I, you know, one can optimistically hope that people will strive for more substance, but I'm not sure history supports but, but, that and, idea. And clearly Donald Trump, as the president-elect, understands that he has alternative ways of reaching the public, mm -hmm. regardless of what you decide or Scott Cannon or I decide to cover or not cover, you know, that tweet's going to get out there somehow right. on Twitter <laughs> to start with, but then someone will cover it. Right. That complicates it too, doesn't it, Colleen? It does. And so this is something that we've seen kind of evolve over the last several years, and, it's, and Donald Trump has used it to greatest effect. But this didn't start with Donald Trump. I mean, we've seen uh, President Obama take great advantage of his opportunities to get his message out without um, talking to the White House press corps in, on a regular basis. And so um, he, more than any other president, because he had more options in front of him, but he, more than any other president, uh, found different ways ways to just work around reporters. And so if he wanted to roll out a new policy, he could put something on Medium. Right. The White House has a Snapchat account. The White House has blogs. Uh, instead of doing interviews sometimes with White House reporters, uh, President Obama gave interviews to YouTube stars. And so um, there's a whole uh, lit, lit, long list of, of options for presidents right. now to ignore us right. if we they choose. We shouldn't blame this all on Donald Trump. Right. He didn't invent this idea of right. going around. No, I mean, he it took it to a new level. Right. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, it was sort of odd that Bill Clinton was playing the sax for Arsenio right. Hall, exactly. or that Obama was sitting down between ferns with Zach Galifianakis. We were all kind of like, is this really what they ought to be doing? And right. Well, it's what they're doing and going to be doing, yeah. right? right? Now, I don't want to leave this other idea, though, that somehow the media should have done a better job in listening to voices 
that aren't heard. Mm -hmm. Again, what you describe in the bubble makes that extraordinarily difficult for you guys. Right. Maybe that's something Scott and I should have done more of, <laughs> although we did it. Sure. And and I think we had, you know, all the papers, all the major news organizations, that's why I think it's kind of ridiculous that somehow we weren't hearing the voice of the forgotten mm -hmm. American, because I think we were. Now, we may have miscalculated how important that vote would be in certain states, which is a mistake that, you know, it's not limited to the news media, apparently. But do you, again, Colleen, get a sense that we should have done a better job or that or that it, you were in a position and you and your colleagues were in a position that you couldn't hear those voices because you're going to an event, you're mm -hmm. taking notes, you're doing whatever on the plane? Right. Well, I, like you, I, I kind of reject some of this as, as bunk in that um, throughout this entire campaign, I think we all wrote stories about uh, just the disaffected voter and folks who felt like this economy left them behind. In the Rust Belt. Right. I told people every resident of Youngstown, Ohio was probably interviewed this year it, by somebody. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, you can find dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of, of these stories. And I think it's difficult to get a precise handle in, in real time on, you know, whether this is 40% of the population 50% of the population, but this population certainly was reflected. And it's not as if, in the end, Donald Trump won in a landslide. I mean, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. This was a close election. And we and we wrote about the mood of the country. I think, you know, in, in retrospect, we all said, we all said, okay, clearly this was a little bit more of the population, of the voting population than we expected. Uh, but that storyline was was out there. Yeah, I, one oh, yeah, yeah. If anything, I'd say it was overplayed, right? Right. I, mean, it, it, I would. Too. We went in. It was a kind of a fifty-fifty country, and in the end, it was a fifty-fifty. Well, not country. only that, but I get the sense, my own sense of it, reading all the work leading up to the election, was the obsession with the coal miner, the steel right. worker, the out of work person, to, at the expense of younger voters or or urban dwellers. I mean, it was it was almost a cliche at the end that you spent so much time. Well, because it fit into the this narrative that the elite media have a certain view of the world. And right. And there was an, you know, for example, the star, Rick Montgomery with the star, went up to Mercer County in Missouri, which was the heaviest Trump concentration of Trump people in the state. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that for Hillary Clinton because there was, again, a discussion we had about trying to understand what the Trump voter was looking for, how it works. So it became a bit of a cliche in the end. And yet you do get a sense that fundamentally we still don't completely understand the Trump phenomenon. Right. Well, why is that, do you think? Well, we've never seen anything quite like Donald Trump. And I mean, as you know, as, as you noted, he broke all the rules. And there were so many things that he did where we said, if anyone else had done this, right. his campaign would be over. Yes. And, and, and Time after time right. after and, time. And that's not debatable. And so, I mean, beginning with him talking about John McCain and, and saying that uh, he likes heroes who weren't captured. I mean, anyone else that would have ended their campaign. And, and, and you can list a dozen more examples after that. You you know, going through the uh, the judge that he went after, you know, up until we get the video of Trump on the bus uh, speaking about women and um, and and these all 
in any other circumstance, if, if Jeb Bush had said that or Scott oh. Walker had said that or Gone. Marco Rubio had said that, they said far less than that and ran into way more trouble. And so in many ways, Donald Trump broke the mold and he is uh, he's a candidate unlike any other. And and so we all had to figure that out in real time. Right. And so that sort of segues into what we do now, Scott, which is now it's not candidate Trump, it's President Trump. How do we crack that code? If we don't understand the election process, do, do we apply the normal standards to a new president? Or do we is something happening, but we don't know what it is? Well, I think what changes it a little bit is it's, it's one thing to tweet during the campaign and take over a news cycle when you actually impose a ban on Muslim immigration, for instance. Well, and that's that does cloud out whatever daily tweet he might have going. I don't right. think he'll be able to step on other messages quite as easily, right? Yeah. Because there'll be real stuff to well, deal and with. The, but the other thing I think we haven't really come to grips with is there is clearly a large segment of the population for which linear thinking and logic and facts, and I, I don't want to be too pejorative about this, but the idea that that we as journalists have always applied to political coverage is you say X, Y happened, this is what it means, mm -hmm. you know, Z. But you get the sense that for a lot of the electorate, that doesn't matter or mm -hmm. did not matter in the election. That would that you know sort of squares the problem that right. we face, right, Colleen? <laughs> right. So I I think a fascinating question will be what exactly do Donald Trump's voters want from him? Because when you talk to them on the campaign trail and when you go to his rallies and you interview people, a lot of them said, no, I don't, I'm not taking him literally, which uh, interestingly, Donald Trump's advisors said you should not take him literally, which was tough for us to process. But right. a lot of voters said, I don't expect him literally to build a wall or I don't expect him necessarily to follow through on X promise or Y promise. Um, but now we're going to move from the theoretical to the real, and and are they going to be happy with what he does in reality, compared, well, right. well, especially I mean, when it's quite different from well, what right. he I promised mean, in theory? I mean, let's just take one quick example. He said repeatedly, I don't want to touch Medicare or Social Security, which, you know, that's a pretty important thing for a huge portion of the of the population, and already Republicans in Congress and some of his appointees have sort of said, well, Medicare, maybe it needs to be changed, Paul Ryan. Uh, Mike Mulvaney, I guess the OMB director, he said that too. Tom Price at HHS. Um, uh, and so we're all writing stories. Well, Trump promised he wouldn't touch Social Security. It doesn't seem like a lot of people think his promise is the same kind of promise that a normal politician would. Make. Yeah, I think that's right. I, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So I think a lot of the conservative, more traditionally conservative folks that he's bringing into his administration, that you will see those sort of agendas move forward. And I suspect that the reaction among voters will be that they'll filter it through their party prism. Mm -hmm. I, I always thought that if, you know, had, had Al Gore won the election and by some freak of history that he had decided to go into Iraq, that there would have been an awful lot of Democrats that yes, would have yes. only been in favor <laughs> yeah, suddenly. and Republicans in opposition. I think you'll say this, see the same thing now. There, there's still a group in the middle, I think, that uh, some significant numbers that voted for Trump and um, only as a vote against Clinton. 
and 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 against the, an establishment, uh, a conventional way of doing things, you know, the, the, this drain the swamp idea resonated there. Yeah. yeah. So so go ahead, Colleen. Oh, I was just going to say, I think one thing also that will change, you know, as Donald Trump made all these promises and and said things that were controversial during the campaign, a lot of reporters kind of kept coming back to the idea that words have consequences, or at yes. least in the past they have, and a lot of times that didn't seem to prove to be true for Donald Trump, but uh, and maybe it won't in domestic politics, but on the world stage, words definitely could have consequences from Donald Trump. And so now when he is president and all of a sudden he's taking calls from Taiwan or he's tweeting about what, what the Chinese should do with the with a drone and, um, I mean, those will have consequences. Those words will have consequences on the world stage. Yeah. And so that may be tougher for him to maneuver around. But do you around. have a sense that he gets that? Or that his people will get that, or is that something that, that we'll TBD. figure out? That is TBD. Yeah. So to wrap up our conversation, Colleen, and to sort of bring it around to the beginning, you're, you're now uh, helping us uh, with the editorial page, running the editorial page here at the Star. Where does opinion journalism fit into this picture, in your view, going forward? I mean, what what does opinion and analysis? What role will those uh, roles play going forward uh, with the Trump administration? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I mean, my hope is that the editorial page, the Kansas City Star's editorial page, can be help lead a civil discourse about important issues. And I want there to be a community conversation, and I want the editorial page to be a place where readers can go and find interesting opinions, uh, interesting, well-reported opinions supported by facts, and um, find things that they agree with, find things that challenge their views, where they can find a wide range of opinions, and hopefully they will learn something along the way and and gain some insights into key issues, and also see find a wide range of ideas on the page. You, you do get the sense, Scott, you've talked, you and I have talked about this a lot, that it, it may be time for plain speaking, too. I mean, just plain speaking, this, this idea that we can sort of couch things in, in journalism speak may be one of the biggest uh, hurdles we need to get over with. Yeah, I think that's a little bit of the challenge of those of us on the news side to to deal with that. And, and I think the advantage that Colleen and her team will have is to 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 call a spade a spade mm -hmm. a little more clearly unless he said, she said. Do, do, do you, is the distrust of the media that we all know is out there, does that change things a little bit? Or, you know, we're having this weird battle over fake news versus real news. I get the sense that there is still a place for what we do mm -hmm. in the firmament, but finding this, you know, the correct slot is going to take a while. Right. I, I'm not sure there's a, uh, a strong argument for a radical shift in straight news coverage based on that. In the end, you've got to do honest reporting and, and like I say, maybe cross your fingers and hope that audience pressure brings back that. Right. Um, and, and you think there is some sense that that might indeed happen, and I think you've already seen some of that in the after the election where, you know, subscriptions are up in some places and people are saying, look, this is this does play a valuable role, right? I mean, I think we need to prove ourselves a trustworthy source, and um, you know, perhaps more than ever, we need to kind of show our work to readers and explain how we know what we know, but uh, but also operate under the belief that facts do matter and that right. we should call out what is actually factually accurate, and and when whether it's the president or or someone else who's saying something that simply isn't true, we need to point that out to readers. All right, and, great. Have, uh, 
final question, Colleen. Have you decompressed? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I, I, might, I must imagine coming to the Kansas City Star after being on the Clinton plane and at the White House is a bit of a change in atmosphere. Is that have you had any chance to take a deep breath and figure out what it all means in the uh, in the cosmic <laughs> universe? <laughs> um, I'm working through that. I've I've had a chance to have a little barbecue and and kind of get settled. Um, a lot of fellow, do it. A lot of fellow <laughs> campaign reporters have have headed to island to various islands to kind of uh, regroup. Uh, I haven't had a chance to do that, but I'm just uh, enjoying the balmy weather here, but uh, even more so the barbecue. Well, so. we're lucky to have you, and we're lucky to have you on the podcast. So thanks so much, Colleen Nelson with The Star and Scott, of course, always. Uh, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, again, a reminder that uh, we're a weekly podcast, so send us your comments, your, uh, your views, your arguments, your disagreements. Uh, to any of our email addresses, and of course, urge your friends and neighbors to subscribe to this little get-together, which, as we've suggested before, uh, next year will involve not just politics, but a whole range of issues that we cover here at the newspaper with all the reporters and opinion people who are working to try and bring you what Colleen just called what are true facts, and <laughs> that's what we're all about. Again, Colleen, thanks. Scott, thanks. My name is Dave Helling. You have been on D. Back.